0: this week has such an important story we split it into two parts part one will cover the history of peter humphrey and his founding of china ways which was the gold standard of due diligence in china up until the day of his arrest we hope you enjoy the show
1: Assault. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the view of Voltpack Research or any of its officers. The views and opinions expressed by guests are their own and their appearance on this program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. We are not investment advisors. We hold no registrations with the SEC, FINRA, or any other regulatory agency, and none of the opinions expressed on this podcast should be considered investment advice. The listener should assume that we have positions in and stand to benefit from any stock or other security mentioned on this podcast. Do your own research before making investment decisions.
0: Welcome to the Woof Den, everybody. This is Dan David coming back at you with the pack. The pack being Carl the Sound Guy. <laughs> and the and the hearty laugh that goes with it. Carl's gonna be on his best behavior today because I have I have an exciting guest for myself. Important guest. Yeah, one of my heroes in the China due diligence business. I think it should be everybody's. We have Peter Humphrey with us, the man who loved China. That's L-O-V-E-D now. And I think he probably still does in some ways. Peter spent 46 years in business, education, media, investigations, and philanthropy in China. His story is something that everybody needs to hear, not because of the tragedy of it, and there is plenty of tragedy, unfortunately. But Peter does not want you to feel sorry for him. It should be a cautionary tale. His story should be an alarm for anyone who thinks Western values means anything to the CCP. Or I would add to that that you have any protection from our government from the CCP while you're there, uh, or help for that matter. Peter currently wears many hats. He's a political analyst, a journalist, a commentator, documentary advisor, an expert witness focusing on the business in China. Peter has worked with Harvard University, my alma mater, King's College in London, and RUSI. He's also spoken at many universities and think tanks. He's a contributor to The Diplomat, The Sunday Times, The Financial Times, and advises many news outlets on China stories and documentaries. Peter is a strident advocate of campaigning against the PRC practice of forced televised confessions from personal experience and donates his time to mentoring families of arbitrarily imprisoned foreigners in China. He may best be known for when he and his wife, Ying, were arbitrarily imprisoned in Shanghai for two years, from 2013 to 15, on false charges related to their work for GlaxoSmithKline, that little company as a due diligence firm and an anti-fraud consultancy. That's what you'll find a lot written about on, on the internet. But we have Peter here to tell you about his experience in person. Welcome to the show, Peter.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Well, I, I have to tell you over the years, I've, I've thought about you a lot. And now that we've had a chance to meet and, you know, it was, again, had a very nice dinner with you and your wife. I can see why you were such a formidable team because, you really were a team. She's an incredibly intelligent lady, and uh, I'm sure had a big part of your business in that way. But when I was starting out in the business, yeah, you were kind of the gold standard. People would come to us when they wanted cheaper prices. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you were the Walmart of due diligence?
0: We, uh, no, no. no. We were, we were more like a local change. We were the Wawa of oh. due diligence. So tell us, how did you get started in this? And give us a little, bit, a little bit about your background, Peter, before you were, because you, you had a rich history before you got into the due diligence business in China, and, and just kind of back us into that.
1: Well, I grew up in England, and uh, when I was a teenager, I started getting interested in China because it was opening tiny cracks, you know, back in the 19, early 1970s, and so I decided to study Chinese studies at university, which I did at Durham University in in the UK. And then I set out to the Far East to to try and build a career. Uh, Initially, I taught at a, a campus in Beijing, which is now called the Peking Culture and Languages University. It used to be called Peking Languages Institute. I taught there for a year or so and but I was always interested in journalism and I, I managed to get to work for several news outlets as a as a freelancer. Moonlighting from my teaching job, and then I, I, I joined the South China Morning Post in Hong Kong as a as a full time senior reporter writing about China. And from there, I migrated to, to Reuters in London uh, to join their international staff as a foreign correspondent. And because I was such an expert on China, of course, they sent me somewhere completely different. My first overseas assignment, they sent me to Vienna (laughs) because I was also quite knowledgeable about the communist countries of Eastern and Central Europe. Yeah, Vienna's not so bad, though. Yeah, Vienna's a nice place. So yeah, I, I actually ended up spending a 10-year diversion um, in Eastern Europe and the Balkans. I covered the collapse of communism in Eastern Europe and, and the collapse of the former Yugoslavia into civil war. And then by way of a one-year one sabbatical at Harvard, uh, I went back to Reuters after that year and, and was posted finally back to the China region and became the deputy bureau chief in Hong Kong. Which took me through, you know, all of the exposure of the Hong Kong handover of sovereignty from Britain to China. I covered the lowering of the flag and, and a year after the handover, I decided to get out of journalism and into, into the due diligence industry.
0: So you're talking 97 handover, 98.
1: Yeah, so I, I transferred into the due diligence industry in 1998. Um, I joined Kroll in Hong Kong. And within a year, they sent me to Beijing to run their their China business, which I did. Um, but you know, from time to time, Kroll went through earthquakes. And uh, after three years working from from Krol, working for Kroll, their Asian operation unraveled basically. And I won't finger any names, but um, it left it left me in a bit of a difficult situation where I was running a successful China off Beijing. But the region around me just fell apart. So I went to join a new department at PwC, which was called PwCIA, which stood for PwC Investigations Asia Limited. I uh, worked in, in that operation for two years, heading China-based uh, work. And and at the end of that, my, my boss in that department had a big punch-up with uh, with, with the top-level management of PwC. So I had to get out of there because they closed our department down. Yes, they did. That's when I began my own company called China Wise uh, Limited with, with my wife um, sort of backing me up. And so uh, we operated China Wise. That's China with a W-H-Y-S on the end of it. So it's the plural of questions and answers. We operated it successfully for 10 years and we never got into trouble. We did develop. We developed a very good uh, reputation. You know, a small company with a big footprint. And as you said, we were like the gold standard. It wasn't because we were super expensive. It was just because we were really very good at our work.
0: Uh, well, before you get into China Wise, you, you've said a lot here about a lot of different companies, and and it, we definitely want to talk about China Wise and, and and what happened when there was trouble. But I have some axes to grind. <laughs> <laughs> I, you? I, I do, <laughs> I do. I I have, I have some shit to sling, in. and and uh, maybe you can fill in some blanks here. We'll start with the least. Uh, how do you think the South China Morning Post has changed over the years? I mean, you know, what were they like pre-handover? Because I guess that's when you were working for them, right? And then what are they like today? And does that relate at all to the Apple News outlet that was in China before everybody there got arrested?
1: When I worked for China Wise in the beginning of the 1980s, 81, 82, uh, around that time. I mean, it was still very much, you know, British Hong Kong and, and the South China Morning Post was a very lively newspaper. It, it, it was the dominant English-language newspaper in the region and it had fantastic sales and, and advertising revenues. It was a rich newspaper and editorially, you know, it was quite free and open, except I think, you know, sometimes maybe they would pull their punches uh, when it came to criticism of the government, which at that time was a British government. But, you know, it was an open and transparent society. The, the judicial system was was fully based on English law, and, and uh, so we we had the rule of law, at least in the court system. Uh, trials were fair and transparent, and, you know, newspapers could cover court sessions and so forth no problem. Very, very different from, from mainland China. Over the years, you know, I've continued to have some contact with people working there and I've seen uh, the paper gradually change. I mean, I suppose by now we should have expected it to have become the People's Daily of Hong Kong in some sort of way and totally controlled and coloured by the Chinese Communist Party propaganda apparatus. That hasn't quite happened, um, to be fair. I mean, I think what's happened is essentially that there are factions within the SCMP. Some some of these these factions represent different uh, strands of Chinese political thought, um, you know, hardliner uh, and liberal and so forth. Uh, and I guess there's still a kind of lingering, you know, faction that supports the the idea of an internationally sort of recognised standard for free press. So it's a bit of a mixed bag right now, and you, you can't trust everything that you read in the South China Morning Post, but it's still a useful source of information.
0: You don't think it's they're now massively pulling their punches when it comes to reporting on the PRC?
1: They're careful, but then occasionally you see you see something that you don't expect to see if if they're pulling their punches all the time. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, and and the Apple Daily. What do you think about? You think that guy Jimmy Lai is ever going to get out of jail?
1: I mean, Jimmy Lai, you know, had a lot of respect in Hong Kong society, in my opinion. You know, both as a, a retailer, you know, with his Apple, uh, what do you call it, the Giordano fashion stores that he used to own, which he built that business, um, and with his newspaper business, uh, and with his very, very sort of maverick, um, outgoing news. Which, as we know, was very, very critical of, of communism, communist party. I think he was very brave. Um, he's always referred to as a tycoon, but you know, he's not among the richest of the rich tycoons. You know, there's no way you would put him on the same um, ranking with someone like um, Lee Kosheng, for example. Yeah. Right. And I think I think he was a decent man, but perhaps at the end of the day. A slightly naive man, um, you know, facing up to the power that is now wielded to bash Hong Kong uh, in the last two or three years, he continued to face that face it down, perhaps thinking that somehow uh, democratic sentiment could win the the battle in Hong Kong. And of course, he ended up in jail. and And will he will he ever get out of jail? You asked. Um, I suspect he will, but I don't think it'll be any time soon.
0: Yeah, I don't either. Okay, so on to a couple more companies that I'm even less thrilled with. Kroll, you worked for Kroll. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, w- when I talked about us being the cheaper version of ChinaWise, everybody in the world's a cheaper version of Kroll, who is <laughs> way overpriced and and I, from what I've seen under delivers. Uh, what was your real experience with Kroll? I mean, it it just seems like a real political mishmash. Mm. Of a culture there.
1: Well, I think you know. I, first of all, I haven't seen I haven't seen any of Kroll's work or fee structure uh, recently. And of course, it's gone through various splits and, and ructions over the years since I was there. And there's now a Kroll Mark II, which is run by the son of Jules Kroll, Jeremy Kroll, and the company that's called Kroll now isn't the original Kroll, Kroll family. Kroll is not, not the same company. Uh-huh. Um, but the Coral that I joined in 1998 uh in Hong Kong was the original Jules Coral company. And uh, I think, you know, despite the fact that you might consider it um, to have been the expensive company and so forth in that industry, it did have a lot of uh track record and cachet as far as I could see when I joined it, which is why I. I joined it. But I was also quite shocked when I got inside the company and, and found out how much they actually charged clients for doing this and that. yeah And I think that the quality of Crawl Asia, which is what I, I was most exposed to Crawl Asia, the, the quality of Crawl Asia was high at that time. um it, it, The guy who headed the region, I'm not going to name names here because if I do, he'll probably sue me. But uh, uh, the guy who headed the region, was very money-driven, very driven, and, and um, was a good salesman. I mean, he, he, the regional head of Kroll would go around knocking on company doors, selling the services. And, um, you know, I, I guess he could have sold a dead donkey to a fashion outlet, you know, it, it, he was a good salesman. But I, over time, I noticed that very often, a lot of promises were not delivered, um, you know, that... Um, clients could be quite disappointed at the end of an investigation or the end of an assignment facing, you know, a big, big bill and and feeling that they didn't really quite solve their problem.
0: Yeah. When you're talking about like thousands and thousands of dollars for an SAIC file that probably cost a couple of hundred bucks, it was just, it was ridiculous.
1: I mean, well that may have happened. Um, it certainly, it certainly didn't happen between me and any of the clients that I took care of and this was something I was very conscious I was very conscious of this when I eventually created my own company and actually said to prospective clients we're not going to leave you you know dangling on a thread with un- unfulfilled promises and, and a big bill like some of the bigger companies do we'll take you stage by stage through a, a situation an ordeal an investigation and at the end of each stage we'll be very frank with you about whether or not we think we can get any further if we were to do another stage and so forth i tried to manage expectations in a way that i don't think crawler always did when i was there
0: well it, i i guess it seems like the business you eventually got into filled a gap a need that you saw that was yeah uh, yeah more informative more hands-on and at at more of a reasonable price
1: Right. We weren't the cheapest and we weren't the most expensive. I and mean, I was trying to occupy some middle ground in, in price and in bang for buck. But I think in general, um, we were highly regarded by our clients for the work we did. And and my motto was, every client is my next salesman. And, and, and so you want to leave your clients satisfied with work you've done to the point that they'll be dropping your name over a bar with the, the head of another company tomorrow the night.
0: True no. capitalist so on to the the last not not saving the least for the last saving the most egregious but price waterhouse (laughs) is it isn't price waterhouse having an investigative division a misnomer i mean like an oxymoron
1: it was but i'll tell i mean i'll tell you a secret and that is that my boss at crawl asia who who left and then crawl asia unraveled he set up this department at PWC. So he sold PWC this idea to have this investigative subsidiary in Asia. So basically he recreated his Kroll Asia inside PWC. And in my opinion, you know, this type this genre of, of due diligence business or fraud investigation business was never welcome by the greater PwC organization.
0: Well, that's not a secret. You yeah. said you were going to tell us a secret.
1: <laughs> that's that <is> a... <laughs> a lot of the, the partners within PwC weren't comfortable with it. Really? They already had – I mean, they had a, a kind of computer forensics and, and financial forensics practices within PwC already, and they weren't comfortable with this uh, cloak-and-dagger organization that suddenly got got planted into it.
0: No, 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 no. They look. They, they, they had enough of an investigative division, which is based on algorithms or computer programs or whatever, that they could. It is now. Yeah, yeah. L- lean back on in a lawsuit and say, "Well, Magic Eight Ball said to do this," but they never wanted to have anything that was so good that they mm. would actually turn down a client.
1: Yeah, lose their fees. Mm. Yeah, it was. Yeah, and, and there was certainly rivalry between. PwCIA and and the other sort of investigative bits of PwC that existed at the time. But when I became um, PwCIA's leader in in Beijing, I did a lot of diplomacy within PwC, internal diplomacy, and managed to win support from quite a number of partners. And gradually, they started referring bits and pieces to me you know, above and beyond what I went out and sold myself. Uh, and so that was working, you know, it took time. But then my boss had this, had another punch up. He had a punch up with PwC and, and our department just got closed down. So I was very unfortunate. So, so I decided I was never going to follow him anywhere again.
0: Well, that's a good move. And that's what you get for being effective. And and, and look, I mean, I, I would say this about PwC as well. They're, they're not any better, worse or different than... Than any of the others, you know, if you talk about Deloitte or you know uh, KPMG, Ernst and Young, all of them, and and you know, in my opinion, certainly I, I I don't have a lot of respect for the work that they've done over there, and they're not the actual A team, right? They're not, you know, Price Waterhouse in China is not Price Waterhouse in the United States. They're a completely separate charter
1: even less so now even you know or I should i say even more so now that is the situation because since i was there which is now a long time ago yeah it's pwc in china has become very chinese were there any just absolute frauds that you you looked at when you were at pwc that management just said uh yeah thanks for the report go back to your desk we're still taking them as a client um, no, I mean, it, and it didn't really work that way. You, you can't you you can't consider it to be PWC management because the head of my department, PWCA, was extremely secretive towards the greater PWC uh, partnership, And they actually didn't get to see a lot of our work. Oh. He managed to persuade them that it was too confidential for them to look at it, you know, things like that, making them even more uncomfortable. Um, but but no right it, you you don't
0: want to you don't want to see this
1: <laughs> but within within PWCIA things went very much as they had done within Crawl Asia it was just the, it was the same operation with a different name
0: right right yeah and 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 the same effectiveness or lack thereof i would imagine so from there getting into the the interesting and and i I'm, I'm sure You know, triggering part of this conversation for you, Uh, you you start China Wise, you're you're successful there. I mean, by by any measure, you have corporate clients that anybody at Kroll or PwC would want, like GlaxoSmithKline, for instance. That's been discussed in many different articles. So I'm not divulging any kind of confidential relationship there. But you had many clients like that that were you know white shoe highbrow, and you, you did investigations for them. You want to tell us about like, some of the investigations you did?
1: Yeah, first of all, you know, when I started my own little company, I didn't take any clients away from my previous employers. Everything was actually based on, on, on sympathy because I was treated quite badly on my way out of Kroll. Um when I tried.
0: How were how you treated badly? What do you mean? Well, I,
1: worked, I, I went after PwC. I went briefly back to Kroll. They hired me to run China again under a different leadership of the region. And within a few months, um, it became clear that the person who they had removed from that job didn't want to be removed from that job. And and he managed to engineer a so-called restructuring of the management in Asia and, and, and forced me out after just a few months of having been rehired. And many people in the business community in Shanghai and Beijing, when they saw that happen, they were quite pissed off because I was quite popular and and I had a good following in our our sector. And as soon as I was pushed out again from my second incarnation at Kroll, people just started calling me up and offering me assignments. And and, uh, they were not former class, they were just
0: all right. So so when you're on your way out of Kroll, what, 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 I mean, does this look like how I'm going to fire Carl when I just like, you know, <laughs> have a box and I put him in the box and throw him out or did well, I'm sure
1: that you wouldn't be as mean and horrible and brutal and, 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 and vile as Kroll. No, he, he uh, would, listen, he I, would,
0: I he lull would. myself to sleep thinking about it, so <laughs> I wouldn't I wouldn't be too sure about it. Yeah, I mean, yeah. so take us to it. I mean, they just call you up one day and say you're gone. And uh, yeah,
1: it was pretty much like that. Yeah. yeah. Wow. And, yeah, okay. Yeah. And and then, as I say, you know, people, a lot of people in the business community knew me, and and they just said, "I know someone who needs needs your services," and so I got lots of, of referrals very quickly, and was able to build a good book, a good list of uh, clients. And and, th- and this and this is what year now? that was in the year 2003 and 2004 so you really had
0: china wise until effectively 2013 yeah 10 years uh, so about 10 years yeah 10 years. i mean you were really you were there pretty much at the very beginning of mm-hmm. china based companies being listed on us exchanges
1: yeah Ah, uh, uh, the rto
0: way before the rto
1: oh uh, yeah. i mean we did we i mean you were interested in getting a feel for the kind of clients that we worked for. I mean, some were small, but some were very big. You know, For example, we did a massive investigation project for Dell. It began with them worrying that they might have an FCPA problem. But after a lot of extensive investigation across, across the whole organization, we actually, what we found, was something more like a, a distribution fraud issue. And, Essentially, the company was being badly ripped off by it, its distribution staff and so forth. And it, it, it wasn't, in the end, an FCPA case. But that was a very big client, and, and we worked for many other big American firms, Terex, the crane uh, well, company. Can you, can you
0: tell us like some of the processes you went through to find that, okay, it's not FCPA. I mean, the fact they're looking into it kind of, you know, says they're more concerned than to have an SC, FCPA violation, but you found that in their, in their supply chain, they're being ripped off. How did you find that?
1: Okay. Well, I mean, we use the comment, of course, we gather a lot of information in from our client. We ask for a lot, a lot of information we can analyze and study. And, and in a thing like that, we need to have a good grasp of their, their organization, you know, what you know what you look what you, you understand what the business model should be mm-hmm. and, and you've got you know lots of things like maybe a whistleblower letter or two and things like that which are providing you with clues and leads. yeah, in this case, we actually managed to persuade a senior whistleblower to come out of hiding. and we we actually managed to interview him and we gathered a lot of leads that way. so we knew where to start going to look we knew who to look at and we had like you know four parallel simultaneous surveillance operations going on on different people at different times even crossing the border and we were doing all the sort of deep investigation on the suspect individuals
0: what border are you crossing hong kong china hong kong yeah okay i just want to make sure that that's where And, and and macau yeah which actually wow wow yeah i mean doing investigations in macau very dangerous
1: we didn't really have to investigate uh, in Macau, but we wanted to know, you know, where a certain person was going and what he was doing. Was obviously,
0: I can I can tell you exactly what they were doing in Macau.
1: Baccarat. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> we, we know, but we want to see it. We want to get evidence of it. And and, and this uh, this case actually went on for many months. And we looked at certain distribution offices around the country. We looked at clients and contracts and so forth. And we found, you know hidden sort of secret additional contracts attached to the supposed contracts and things like that with arrangements that that fed money back from clients, fed money back into the pockets of, of certain key distribution and sales managers. And the situation was so bad that basically these people destroyed Dell's original business model, you know, because the original business model was to sell online, not, Not to have the computers in shops and not to have them traded in a market, but they were supposed to be sold from uh, Dell's online platform. And uh, these people had actually destroyed that business model. And I think because of that, later on, Dell itself officially kind of gave up its original business model in China and adopted two or three different types of model running at the same time. The big problem. With Dell, then at that time, was that you know many of its customers were very very big government customers, entire ministries, for example, or or the entire fire service of, of, of a big city, and even maybe the police in some instances. So that a lot of very big government customers, and and that's an area which does trigger concern about FCPA violations, which is why Dell was very worried that they might have major. FCPA issue at that time, and we worked very closely with American attorneys who were specialized in FCPA cases. In fact, we were really under their supervision more than we were under companies' supervision. Okay, we even had live, you know, live monitoring of with Del, with Dell's facilitation, we had some live monitoring of communications between people inside the Del organization, which Dell gave you access to. You didn't surreptitiously do that. We were enabled we were enabled by. It. So th- this was a, a big eye-opening experience for us, and, and certainly one that earned us a lot of kudos um, at the time. And fortunately, we helped, you know, show that they, they weren't at fault. They were actually victim in this instance. We've done a number of fcpa type of investigations um as well as fraud investigations so we do know the difference
0: yeah
1: sometimes of course they do become intertwined with each other another type of investigation um, that we did a lot of was more classic due diligence and especially in m and a situations where we often work closely with m and a lawyers um, representing quite large american and european companies preparing to make strategic acquisitions within China. And, of course, you know, whoever's inside your client organisation promoting this or that acquisition, it doesn't want it to fail. So there's a certain amount of tension uh, between the investigation company and whoever in the client company is, is pushing a particular acquisition. And the law, the external lawyers... In the middle to some extent you know they're on the side of of the uh, sorry on the side of the uh, the client company in that debate but our job was to give them a cold shower i mean you know i would always tell them you know our, our objective is not to torpedo every deal you try to do our objective is to show you the traffic lights and you know very often it's not a matter of a green light or a red light. It's a matter of an amber light, and and it, we highlight risks. and you really need to deal with those risks as part of the negotiation process, and when you do your internal financial due diligence, which you should also be doing in addition to our external uh, due diligence. We often found things that were very alarming. you know, for example, shareholder relationships within a target company would lead you to communist party officials. And of course that's a major concern in the, in the FCPA realm as well. And we often found, you know, conflict, conflict relationships within a target company. They're offering themselves
0: overlapping ownership,
1: right? Yeah. They're they're offering themselves to be sold. Yeah. They've already started creating the replacement company down the road, which right. is going to just carry on as usual once they've sold, will eventually become a useless shell. All kinds of issues like that that we uncovered through online research, plus records research, lots of analysis, and, and doorstepping inquiries where we sent investigators under commercial cover to actually you know, get themselves into... Target companies and under this or that excuse and and uh, and bullshit uh, basically and find things out on the basis of being a potential customer or, or a potential supplier or a potential this or that and right. and uh, so so a lot's changed right um, a lot's changed since then it's hard to say I mean I think I think that um, those conventional uh, investigation companies don't do so much of that hard nosed work anymore you know especially since. I and my wife were thrown in, in, in prison. A lot of uh, investigation companies became very wary. and Some people just fled from the industry or fled from the country. Well, right.
0: I, I mean, I and I, I want to talk about that because, you know, nominally I was in that business and I still am in that business. And in, in, in my current Wolfpack research company, we we do investigations in China. They're, they're for myself though, not for clients. And basically – by the time 2013 comes around, you're doing an investigation that is not unlike many investigations you've done in the past. You maybe weren't given all the information up front from a, from the client, which I don't know how unusual that is either, but you know, pulling SAIC filings, pulling hookahs, pulling travel records of people, which is that's, it's a thing about a communist country that people don't understand. They, they have a record of, everything everybody does and it's 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 very pullable maybe we'll find out here someday this is the kind of thing you've done for all these companies in the past and for 10 years it was fine and then one day it was not fine you can you tell us about that day
1: this this was a case where we weren't arrested because of that activity we were arrested because of whose information it was and and the police told us that during interrogations we weren't arrested for what we did. we were arrested be, you know, because of whose information it that's
0: was. funny because that, that happens every single time it's It's like it's it's not what you did, it's who you pissed off.
1: yeah absolutely. And so, they tell
0: you that right up front.
1: Right. well, this was during interrogations uh, that they told my wife that. anyway, if let let's take a step back to the sure the, be- the beginning of the of the question, as it were, yeah, we were ten years as China wise no client had dropped us in the shit okay we had not done anything illegal uh, in my view and uh, we'd, we'd not been in trouble ever there was a period of time when i even had some friendly contact with um, the security authorities but in 2013 you know we were engaged by by gsk as 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 is very widely known, and it's all it's in it's in the media. So I'm not divulging any new secrets by saying this. We were hired by by GSK to investigate a Chinese woman who had served as a senior executive. Basically, this woman had been the government relations director for China, and her name was Vivian. Okay, and that's known as well. It's it's all out there. And we were given this story by the head of GSK China and and the chief GSK lawyer for Asia, this story that um, this woman had been persuaded to leave the company six months earlier.
0: She was shown the door kind of like the
1: Kroll method? Because because of irregularities with her travel expenses. Uh And they said that they now suspected her of orchestrating a smear campaign behind the the scenes to try and damage the reputation of the company. They believed that she was the author of a number of letters that had gone to various government agencies. And what they didn't tell us was that um, actually they were very serious and detailed allegations that the, the whistleblower, if we may call her that, have been making
0: so you didn't have the detail of of the allegations
1: i mean no i actually as an experienced fcpa investigator yeah i said look you know let us investigate the allegations can we see the allegations please you know you you know you must have copies of them oh there was a copy <laughs> yeah.
0: there, was a, there was a tape wasn't there and it was it was a sex tape wasn't there
1: that's a separate issue we can come to that okay but stay, stay at the moment with this part of it. Basically, the story went as I've just described it. And the and key thing here is that they, they refused to let us investigate the allegations or to show us the allegations. They said they had already done that internally and nothing had been found. There was nothing there. They said that they wanted to understand more about her background and what she was doing and so forth. They should have done that before they'd hired her a few years earlier, because she turned out to be a very powerful woman. So we agreed to to do a background investigation, to profile her, okay? And then they came out with this other story about how somebody had sent um, a video clip, and it was done via a link not not a file you know it sent this video clip to senior management figures in the global organization alleging that the head of china mark riley was corrupt and and that there was some kind of illicit relationship between him and this chinese woman who he was seen fucking in this video oh oh In, in, in his own bedroom in his own apartment and so they wanted to and he wanted to know how this was possible. Who did it? You know? And I said, look, you know, it's pretty obvious that something like that in China could only have been done by the security authorities or with the MSS, the Ministry of State Security. And uh, you know, there's a limit to what we can do without getting into trouble with that particular matter. And I said, look, but we can do a security assessment on this apartment and consider all all the facts and so forth and come up with an assessment where we will try to suggest um, how this happened and who could have been involved and whether or not your ex-employee may have orchestrated it. But we can't go investigating the police. We accepted an assignment to conduct this profiling investigation on the lady called Vivian. And as a sidebar to that investigation, we agreed to do A little security assessment investigation on that particular apartment. Um, And that is what we did. And um, we didn't uncover any kind of smoking guns on, on Vivian. And our report made that clear. We did, on the profiling, uncover an extremely unsavory reputation for being an unpleasant person in each company where she had worked. And, and we, we, we also found that there had been a similar, um, what can I say, secret whistleblowing attack on one of her previous employers around the time that she left that company, which was... She
0: sounds like a real asshole.
1: <laughs> uh, well, I, I honestly couldn't say one way or the other whether she's a real asshole or not. But we also, you know, realized from this investigation, we discovered that she did have fairly high-level connections. Yeah. Her her father had been a senior official in the Shanghai government. He had headed headed, headed the health side of of the Shanghai government, and he had some, you know, connections back to some of the... He had worked as a young man for for some of the founders of the People's Republic, including Chen Yi, who was the first mayor of Shanghai. Uh, And so there were strong Guanxi, Communist Party, Guanxi in the family. And eventually, if we had been allowed to do a phase two, if we had gone on to do a phase two of our investigation later, we would have found even higher level connections, which we were only able to really confirm after our release from prison two years later.
0: Well, first we should tell people that, you know, being the mayor of Shanghai... Isn't like some idiot you went to high school with that won a popularity contest and? and
1: Her father did have some kind of um, underling relationship in his younger life.
0: Well, right, and he's you're you're appointed to that position, and by by the government, it's a very very high level position, and you have to be you have to be somebody to get that job to be mayor of Shanghai, especially the first mayor.
1: Well, the first mayor Chen Yi, yeah, and and um, so so Vivian's father worked in the shanghai government all his life and he was also a doctor and you know a traditional chinese practitioner and this means that um he got to know senior chinese officials with health issues and as favors he would help them out and give them treatment from time to time and so as a result of that the family developed some very very powerful relationships Which eventually, you know, as people moved up the ladder to Beijing, they had relationships with powerful people in Beijing right at the Politburo level. And that's why we went to jail.
0: And that's the standing committee of the Politburo it went up to. It wasn't just like, you know, you're talking about one of the top nine.
1: It was, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. it was.
0: Well, in that case, you know, I mean, upon hearing that, you just know you're fucked, right?
1: Yeah, and it, it would never have happened if GSK had been straight with us. because. You know, I always had a policy in my business of not investigating governments. Good policy. And not working for governments as well, by the way.
0: Another good policy.
1: So, you know, I, I would not have undertaken the work if I had known that the real reason why they were hiring us was to investigate somebody who was blowing the whistle on a bribery racket. That's not what you should do. You should investigate the allegations. And, and you should try to coax whistleblower to come out into the open and give them a fair hearing, right? And that is how I had approached FCPA investigations in the past. And as I explained with Bell, that worked very well. Um, but essentially, for the first time in 10 years of operating our business safely, successfully, and legally, a client came along, a big company, that lied to us and dropped us in trouble
0: yeah and without going going into it has not been there for you since so you know that that story is yet to be written I guess the story that has happened and maybe you could take us through it is tell us about the day I mean the day of I mean this this information starts to come out you get the feeling you're in trouble but then there was a day where all hell broke loose and and your life and freedom were taken yeah. away
1: Oh. In the run-up to that day, um, and that day was the tenth of July, two thousand thirteen. But in the run-up to that day, I started to get some some sense that uh, things were going going wrong. And uh, the key first key date was the twenty sixth, a couple of weeks, when GSK finally released some allegation letters to us. And I, I looked at these allegation letters, and I'm a person who's seen hundreds, maybe thousands of. Of whistleblower letters and whistleblower emails and so one of them was just a really detailed analytical report on the structure of the bribery scheme and um i know that since then one or two newspaper journalists have gotten hold of that document and so when i read that report around the 26th or the 27th june 2013 i just said to myself oh shit this is true I said, because I can, t- I can usually tell when a whistleblower report is true or false. Or right.
0: you could at least tell when it's complete bullshit, and, and you, know, you look at this and see this is not complete BS. Yeah, absolutely.
1: So, I, and I, so I realized that we'd been basically we'd been cheated, sent on a fool's errand. Okay. And at the same time, there were other things they were asking me to do, which I won't go into here, but which could well form part of our court case against them. I discovered that. Uh, These allegations were serious and I I believe they were true. And then they were trying to ask me to counter investigate, investigation into them. That's where I kind of drew the shutters down. And, you know, by the way, what I said is in the writ against GSK. So this is a public record, and the actual substance of the writ has not been tested in, in any detail. GSK has said that these allegations I'm making have no merit. Well, I think that's it's best if a court decides whether they have any and, merit. And
0: that is filed in the uh, Pennsylvania Superior Court, correct?
1: It's in the state court. Yeah. It was we originally filed it in federal court under the RICO Act, but because of the require the very stringent requirement uh, for what they call domestic injury elements, in other words. Most of the story should be in the U.S., as it were. It didn't meet the test for a federal RICO case. So we then refiled it in state court where there is no such barrier and it was accepted. And over the last four or five years, essentially, TSK has been um, trying to stall it, delay it, sure. prevent it, prevent it from going to trial.
0: Waiting for you to die
1: trying to argue that the case should be sent to Beijing for arbitration, knowing full well that yeah. I, I in my health condition and visa condition cannot possibly do that.
0: Not the least of which there's no, there's no comity between our countries.
1: That's where we are with that. And, and, and um, so I, I was very uncomfortable after reading those allegations at the end of June. I was uncomfortable with the things they were then trying to ask me to do. And as I've stated in the Ritz, I had a meeting on the 2nd of July with Mark Riley, and I told him that we were not able to work there many
0: Did you ever think about leaving? Like, you know, hey, honey, we should maybe think about taking that trip.
1: <laughs> no, I didn't. And of course, this is bringing us closer to your original question, which is about what happened on that day. Um, you know, I mean, I was responsible for a company. I was responsible for many clients. I was responsible for all my staff and so forth. This was it was not something you could run away from. And, and of course, the principal thought also was we have never done anything illegal. We've been operating legally and we've never had any problems before. But in this instance, we have been led astray and, and cheated. But I didn't believe that we had done anything illegal. So I saw no reason for anything to happen. But unfortunately, on the 10th of July, it did. And in, in the final day or two before that happened, I did have a sense that we were under surveillance. There were a few strange things that happened around the floor of our building on which our premises were located. It was on the 22nd floor of a high-rise building in Siu I just felt there were some strange movements of people and and things like that, and uh, things weren't quite right. And indeed, indeed, that was true, because on the morning of 10th of July, which I believe was Wednesday morning. What time? It was between 7 and 8 a.m., I think. Oh. And the previous night, I had been out late. I'd been to two or three different functions. I'd been to a Rotary Club dinner, and then I'd gone to, to meet various people and, and uh, came back late, rather weary. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, uh, and my wife was was there. Ying, Ying was there. Was it because- scotch or bourbon? Uh, you know, I can't remember. Yeah, oh, that was. Wow. I do, know that, I do know that I had a very precious bottle of Canadian whiskey in my backpack. No such thing. Which came home with me and actually was re-found after we were released two years later. But,
0: no kidding. Uh, uh, I would have drank that as soon as I got out.
1: You know, I was tired, and and, and uh, my wife had just arrived that day from from Beijing. Uh, our home was in Beijing, and our business was in Shanghai, and. It was beyond bedtime, and we didn't talk that night about any, any of this. We hadn't actually had a discussion about um, my concerns over the last few days.
0: You he hadn't, he hadn't spoken over the past few weeks or about no, like, was,
1: hey... The, the past few days were the key things. Okay, okay. You know, I, I, I was concerned about surveillance, and I was concerned about the fact that um, those allegations were probably true.
0: Mm-hmm. But,
1: you know, she'd been in america until a few days before um she came back right and uh you know we couldn't really communicate over the phone about these issues that were on my mind and i certainly didn't expect something to happen that, that quickly and that sudden but during the last couple of days before it did happen i had spoken to a friend of mine who was a former journalist colleague of mine um, a guy at the wall street journal and i'd spoken to a a retired uh, London policeman who'd become a businessman and was my due diligence client um, about my concerns. And uh, then two days later, it, it, it happened. Did you speak to
0: them over the phone?
1: No, they were face-to-face encounters. Right, you yeah. want
0: to tell people why why you're not comfortable speaking over the phone?
1: I mean, the issues that were concerning me, which you know, because I've just explained them, I, I, I wouldn't have wanted those conversations to be in, intercepted by, you know, the all-pervasive Chinese telephone surveillance right. network of the PSB or the Ministry of State Security. And we know very well that they do those things all the time. And of course, now now it's even worse. Now it's even worse. It's much higher.
0: Yeah, it's pervasive. It's... Now they do it here.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. So on the, that morning, we were just getting up. You know, Ying was in little kitchen that we had there in, in, in the office premises. We had a bedroom, uh, tucked away in the corner of the office. And we also had a little kitchen, in addition to office uh, space. And she was just making her breakfast. And I was still in the bedroom, you know, went to the bathroom, sat on the toilet kind of thing, listened to the blackbirds chirping outside the window. and and uh, And all of a sudden, I heard a banging on the bedroom door which i had actually locked in case any staff came in early that morning
0: right because you're because you're on the toilet
1: as, as one does <laughs> yeah. i was on the toilet and so, so there was this banging banging bang. so i got up quickly you know finished my business and went to the, the door in my underpants and uh and i heard ying outside the door saying peter it's the police you've got to open the door and I thought, what the hell's going on i was I was certainly half awake, you know, and all of a sudden the door flew off the hinges and oh, hit me, oh, oh. hit me hit me full on no way. And, and so and, and and i was I flew against the wall and the door jamb of the bathroom in there and and um uh, badly injured my neck. i mean, I still have a problem with my neck as a result of that oh wow and I was slightly concussed for a while but and, and then you know. I look up and there's you know this blazing spotlight on me and they're taking pictures and filming me and and someone's holding a police ID in my you know an inch from my eyes and things like that. It was a very shocking experience. And uh, uh, and then I got up on my feet again and I was told to sit on the corner of my bed and and stay there. And I, I was not fully clothed. Um, and you were concussed. Yeah. And I was concussed, and there was a rather beefy, middle-aged man in the in the gang who who sat in the bedroom guarding me, my minder. Were you were you at gunpoint? No, there was, I didn't see any guns drawn. That's
0: how you know you weren't in the United States,
1: right? Uh, <laughs> absolutely, yeah. Or Kenosha, and uh, oh. 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 <laughs> go get them.